Should I stop recording, Ross? Yeah, we can Oh my god, we're recording all that? Oh, we were. Here you on eight. Here you on eight. Okay, you're clear. Stand by for your base. Welcome to a special bonus episode of EMS Cast. I'm your host, Ross Orpit, and the following is a Q&A session with paramedic Will Berry and toxicology fellow Nick Matzler on the presentation and treatment of serotonin syndrome. Last week, Nick and I listened to a case that Matt Mendez saw at a festival that involves a really sick patient presenting with serotonin syndrome after some drug use. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, go back and check it out, as this episode is Will's follow-up question to Nick's breakdown and critique of that case. And make sure you stick around until the end, because after we finished the Q&A session, we ended up having an impromptu conversation about the utility of entitled CO2 in the pre-hospital setting while the mics were still recording. This was a very unplanned and off-the-cuff discussion about entitled CO2, but I thought you might find it entertaining, so I went ahead and kept it in for you. Enjoy. All right, so I already alluded to the fact that Will Berry is sitting here with us right now. And although all three of us here, and and Matt included, we have all at various times worked on the ambulance, but Will, you're the only one of us still actually doing the job, still actually getting behind the wheel and walking into the street or into people's homes and practicing paramedicine. I wanted to open up this final section to you after listening to Nick and I talk about this, what questions came up for you and what things do you think our listeners may want to know more about? Thanks, Ross. A couple things leading off this case obviously stemmed from illicit party drug usage, but what other things can cause serotonin syndrome besides MDMA, Molly ecstasy, hallucinogens? Everything you just listed is exactly right. All those will usually cause a pretty reasonable shift in your serotonin. What's interesting is that usually you have to have something that's predisposing to this. What I mean by that is usually somebody has to be on at least one serotonergic agent, if not a couple, before they're really going to get into trouble or they have to have a pretty big overdose of one of those medications. We talked about the SSRIs. Those will obviously predispose you if you take them therapeutically. And certainly if you take them in overdose, you can get into serotonin syndrome. There's also things called MAO inhibitors. MAO is monoamine oxidase. What it does is it's responsible for breaking down some of these neurotransmitters like serotonin. So if you inhibit that, then you cannot break down serotonin. And so you end up with an excess. And then there's a bunch, a bunch of others. And really what it is, is kind of psychotropic medications in general. So if it is a psychiatric medication, it probably impacts serotonin in some way. And it could be an antagonist, but more often than not, it is increasing your serotonin overall. And then all those party drugs you mentioned, the LSDs, the mollies, psilocybin from magic mushrooms, ayahuasca, all these kinds of things will acutely increase your serotonin. So if it's somebody who's already taken a serotonergic medication, like I'm on an SSRI baseline, and then I went and dropped ayahuasca in the desert, you could get into trouble. That just sounds like a normal Tuesday. Burning man. So you and Ross both talked, well, and Matt, talked quite a bit about this idea of these patients being on a continuum slash downward trajectory into, you know, 
dying if nothing is done. But there's also some language you guys used around the idea of getting ahead of it. How do you know if you are getting ahead of it? How do you know if you are making progress in treating these patients, especially in the absence of being able to monitor someone's temperature? Absolutely. I think that's, that is one of the things that's going to make it challenging is that even if you can monitor temperature pre-hospitally, it's not likely going to be a core temperature, which is usually what we're talking about in the hospital setting is what is their core temperature overall. In the pre-hospital setting, really what it comes down to is what are their other vital signs? What is the blood pressure? What is the heart rate? And then it's also what is the level of agitation and muscular rigidity that you're seeing in these patients? So if you have somebody who's starting out, gosh, you know, they're in the 160s, they're hypertension to the 170s, and they are feeling rigid and you start slugging them down with benzos. If you start seeing a response in those, if you see the heart rate start to come down, now it's, you know, still tacky, but now in like the one teens, the blood pressure's coming down and they're starting to loosen up, that is what I would consider a success. And so if you're seeing a response in the muscle rigidity and you're seeing a response in the vital signs in terms of the heart rate improving and the blood pressure improving, that is what I'd start using as some of my markers. If you are coming into the hospital and you've melted away the rigidity, but you still have some hypertension tachycardia, I'm fine with that. I think you're in a good spot. If you still have muscle rigidity, they still need more. And so what I would really use is their muscular physical exam. And if you can't bend their knee, if you pick up their thigh and their whole leg comes off the bed, they are rigid and they need more benzodiazepine. I would treat more to the muscular findings, but overall, you should see a response in both the vitals and the muscular findings. But if they're so severe, like the patient Matt put out for us tonight, you may just not see, you may just keep trying, keep slugging them down, and you may just not make it by the time you get to the hospital to a point where you feel like you've gotten on top of it. And that's okay because it's a game of increasing the dose until we see the response. And so you've given us a great starting point of saying, great, we've given 20 milligrams of midazolam so far. Great. Now I know it's not going to be as difficult for me to get on top of this patient because you guys have already laid the foundation. What about intramuscular meds in these patients? Because having been on a really similar call in a special event context and you're either on foot on some sort of like ATV or we would mainly do it on bicycles, your first dose and maybe subsequent couple doses might be intramuscular and my paramedic brain which i've haven't gone through nearly the amount of training and education as like you guys regarding this stuff but i'm thinking like well if i hit different muscle groups and their muscles are firing so intensely does that affect the availability of intramuscular benzos Man, you you ask really, really excellent questions because the the simple answer is I'm not 100% sure. But (laughs) what, what I think overall is that usually when we see increased muscle activity, we see increased blood flow to those groups. And by virtue of increased blood flow, I would imagine the the drugs we deposited in there, so the intramuscular administration, should be absorbed a little bit faster. So in these folks that are hypermetabolic, they're 
agitated. They're moving around a lot. They're rigid. They're clonazine. In those kinds of patients, I actually would expect the absorption to be increased a little bit from IM. But overall, just as you were pointing out, IM is going to be a little slower than IV. But if it's all you have, absolutely, that's the perfect place to start. And I would just keep slugging them down that way until they get to a spot where you feel safe enough to put an IV in or worst case, if you need to put an IO or some sort of other access in this patient, and then you can continue to administer medications via that direction. Can you talk about how effective IV fluids are at cooling someone down? Not necessarily cooled saline, but, you know, room temperature saline. I'm thinking about somebody that's hot, hyperthermic. That's just someone I generally want to hydrate with my IV fluids or give them a bolus. Does that have any effect on the hyperthermia? Absolutely. You're totally right. Even a room temperature bag of fluids is going to have a fairly profound effect on somebody's overall body temperature. I remember in paramedic school, when we started the IVs on each other, they'd hook me up to a bag so I could see what it was like. And you get cold. And I don't know if you ever had that experience or anybody else, but especially like when you're in the emergency department, you see this time and time again, where patients who are relatively well, but they need hydration for some reason, you're giving them a liter and then you walk back in the room and they're snuggled under like 10 blankets because they're like, oh my gosh, I got cold. And none of these patients were intentionally giving cooled saline to we're just giving them room temperature stuff. And that's enough to drop their body temperature and make them feel cold. You're totally right. These people need hydration. And in fact, they might even need the salt that comes along with the hydration that you're going to give them. And on top of that, you might make headway with their body temperature, or I take that back. You absolutely will make headway with their body temperature because the Delta between that bag of saline and the heat of the patient is so extreme. Even that one or two liters you put in them is going to be able to drop their body temperature at least a little little bit. What about paramedics that work in places where maybe they have more than one choice in benzo? Does that matter? I think this is a really great overarching question in terms of benzodiazepine administration. If you would have asked me this question as a resident, I would have said lorazepam or Ativan is my favorite benzodiazepine. And now as I've transitioned a little bit later, midazolam or Versed has become my favorite benzodiazepine. And the reason for it is of the commonly available benzodiazepines that we all conventionally use. So us on the rig, us in the hospital, midazolam is actually the fastest peak onset of action, IV at least, of any of the benzos we have. When you push midazolam, you are almost guaranteed that it's going to peak in terms of you're going to see the maximal efficacy of the dose you just gave somewhere within around 15-ish minutes. And when you talk about other benzos like lorazepam, Ativan, we're talking about 30 minutes in terms of a peak. One of the things that I find is that when I use lorazepam, I probably overshoot more in patients because I think I haven't given enough, but really I just haven't waited long enough to see the effect I want. And so by the time I keep dosing and dosing my lorazepam, by the time it catches up, well, shoot, that patient still is waiting to feel the effects of another couple doses that I gave. And now I snow the patient and now I have to intubate him or something else like that. With midazolam, I find that you can give reasonable doses. They're going to peak relatively relatively quickly. And so you're going to have the opportunity to see the effect of the dose you've just given within the next about 15 minutes. And if they still need more benzo, you can give them more benzo and not worry about sort of the quote stacking problem that some of these other benzodiazepines give us. That makes sense. Um, what is happening between the initial freak out, like this patient, oh my God, my mom's going to kill me to 
so much clonus that their body is so rigid. What is going on in that amount of time between that initial presentation and the really profound presentation? And the reason I ask it is because for some paramedics that I think may not appreciate the severity of the continuum that this patient's on, the first patient presentation is, oh, this is no big deal. I just got a kid that's doesn't want his mom to find out I did drugs. And then the other one is, oh my gosh, what is happening? I'm giving all these meds I'm allowed to give and it, they're not working. Understanding the the process in between that helps us then make the decision to treat aggressively. Will, again, I think you bring up like an insanely great question because there's nothing simple about this one. Go to one extreme, like you have a patient who took edibles for the first time and you starts having a lot of profound anxiety and they're like, oh my gosh, I don't want my parents to find out. That patient, none of us are really worried about, right? They took a little too much marijuana. We know they don't have any risk for mortality almost and that they're probably going to be safe. So all of us are like, yes, this is a patient that maybe we kick them a little bit of Versed to help the anxiety or take the edge off. Off, but overall, this is a patient I'm not worried about. So when you see a patient who's done ecstasy or multiple serotonergic medications and they're starting to go down this pathway, I think it is easy sometimes to say, ah, here's somebody that we don't need to worry about who's just, you know, they're anxious that their parental figure is going to find out and that's what's driving this whole like physiology that we see. But that's that's where it starts becoming a fallacy. And what I mean by that is like, take the marijuana kid, right? The marijuana kid who's anxious that their parents are going to find out, maybe they're a little tacky, but what are they tacky to? Like the one teens, right? If they're tacky to the 160s because their parents don't want to find out, I think something else is going on. I'm worried about a different physiology here. If they're hypertensive to the 170s, 80s, 90s, if they're diaphoretic, if they are having temperature changes, absolutely some of these things you can start approaching with anxiety, but at some point, the vital signs overwhelmingly point towards something else. And so with a lot of people, what I see is that when people start trying to explain away vital sign changes is when we start getting into trouble. So when you see somebody who, hey man, they're a little anxious, their parents are going to find out, their their pulse rate is 105 and their blood pressure is 130. I'm like, yeah, man, that is a reasonable explanation for what you see in front of you. When I start worrying is when somebody says, ah, yeah, they were just anxious, you know, and so I didn't really treat them that aggressively. And I'm like, okay, well, what were their vitals? And they're like, yeah, they, you know, their heart rate was 160 and their blood pressure was 180. That's when I'm like, I don't think you can explain reasonably away these vital sign abnormalities with the diagnosis that you're trying to attribute to this. Usually what I recommend to folks is just earnestly look at what you have in front of you. Just write it on a piece of paper because I think part of it for me is, especially in residency and as an attending, I think sometimes it's difficult to divorce yourself from the patient and your implicit biases that you see in front of you. You see a patient and they tell you all this extraneous information and you're like, ah, I don't know how much of this is real or not, just take what they tell you out loud and their vital signs and write it down on a piece of paper and then read it back to yourself and say, okay, really at the end of the day, this patient that I think is a little crazy and histrionic, well, what they're telling me is they're very anxious and that their pulse rate is 160 and their blood pressure is 190. Well, shoot, when I read it like that, 
that, I really can't deny that something else must be going on in this patient, or I need to rule everything else out until I leave this as a diagnosis of exclusion. So in those kinds of patients, I really just encourage going back to your hard data, eliminate what the patient is telling you, and just go to what you can actually measure in this patient. And sometimes I think that can help you travel down the right path and say, you know what, this is more than just simple anxiety or more than just simple parental avoidance. This is somebody who has something on board and I need to start getting on top of it. And maybe you make a lot of progress with the first dose of benzos and maybe you don't, but as long as you recognize it, then you can know whether you're titrating to effect or not. That really resonates with me because I try to harp pretty significantly to any student or or trainee that I've had in my time to not explain away vital signs. That I, I feel like that only leads you to trouble. Paying attention to the vital signs, I can't harp on that enough to pre-hospital providers. And part of that too is because it's one of the few things we have. It's one of the few measurable objective things that we have in the field. Absolutely agree. That is so helpful. And thanks for all your input, Nick. It's been absolutely my pleasure. And I really appreciate you guys putting up with all all the extra that I bring. <laughs> it's great extra. Great extra. Nick, are you still on? Oh, yeah. Cool. I mean, what was my other... I, I don't know if we want to go down this pathway, but because I think it ends up being kind of a dead end. But I was thinking about entitled CO2. Entitled fucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In a good way or a bad way? Good way. I okay, like entitled. Right, cool. Do you guys hate entitled now? No, Is it swung no, the other direction? No, here, here, Am here I missing the out. boat? Do I need to hate it? No, 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 no. You don't. Here, The reason I said it's a dead end is because you put yourself in the back of the ambulance with this guy. Yeah. What you're really looking at is like, is he still breathing or not? Mm-hmm. And so to then, I mean, look at look at Matt's story. It, it ends up being too much data in that situation. Not in all, Agreed. but in, in this situation, it would be where it's like, we're not holding in the IV. We don't feel like we're ahead of this thing. We're trying to give more benzos, trying to give more benzos, trying to give more benzos. We're three minutes from the hospital, and it's like, oh, man, his end title is 47. That's a little <laughs> high. Like, and, and so, you know, maybe in a in a longer transport setting or, or people that, you know, use vents in the field, I could see them dialing things in more. But that's where I'm like, eh, it's kind of a rabbit hole. I want to fuck with you a little bit. What what is right, the yeah. uh what is the end title reading on a hypoventilating patient? Like what do what do I expect to see in my end title reading to tell me somebody's not breathing? Well, when they go apneic, I'm mainly looking at the waveform. So like I, I'm gonna stop seeing them breathe in real time. Yeah. Per, you know what per, I'm saying? Perfect. Per, no, no, no. That that's that's a perfect answer because I, I think the problem is most people think about it as oh, the number is going to go up or down when somebody's not breathing. And the problem is you can see either. So you can see end title that goes up because what you're invoking is, is that this patient is still taking a depth of respiration that's sufficient to blow out CO2, but because they're bradypneic, meaning they're not breathing as many times per minute, each breath has a higher end tidal concentration. So I'm taking, you know, four breaths a minute that are all reasonable size breaths. So each one of those breaths has a higher end tidal reading to it. So now I'm going to the seventies and eighties and all that bullshit. The problem is though, is the exact opposite can be true too. So if I'm not respirating at all, 
my untitled reading is zero because I'm not breathing yeah. anything off. Or worse yet, if I'm just taking shallow respirations, which still look like respirations, if I'm just ventilating dead space, then I'm not exchanging gas. So the reading it will give me is what the air surrounding me is, which is low CO2. So it'll look low or normal or zero or somewhere in that spectrum just because I'm bradypnic. And so like, uh, I like Entitle a lot because it tells me cool shit, but it's all shit from like an academic perspective, like that I find is not actually helpful in, in informing my care. And there's actually studies on Entitle CO2 monitoring for opioid overdose and for procedural sedation. And it does shit. It doesn't change outcomes at all. Like does absolutely nothing. So like it makes us feel better. And academically, I love talking about it because that's all I do is not real medicine. I just do bullshit. And so I really <laughs> like talking about Entitle, but I don't think it's useful in a lot of scenarios well i i always come back to i was training this like trainee at denver health and we had this like just altered mental status 70s female and it was just like the one where you know i don't know i i've come to a place as a paramedic where i'm like I'm going to check everything and we're still probably not going to know what it is because God, that's we're like what's the same gonna... person. You could be a doctor, Will. <laughs> yeah. It's like, they're going to do that in the ED too. They're going to scan them. They're going to draw the lab. Like oh, they need... check everything. <laughs> yeah. They need more information. And yeah. so, but he like, he got wrapped around the axle one. So he, he was like, now I, I really want to put this person on entitle. I'm like, okay, like we can do that. And yeah. so he's got, by the time you get to the hospital, there's like alarms going off and there's wires <laughs> crossed. And so, and I'm like, what's going on back here? You know? And he's like, ah, uh, uh, you know, and I'm like, let's go inside. So we take the patient in and I was like, what is going on, dude? And he's like, honestly, I don't even know. Like now I'd, I've lost track of everything. And it's like, yeah, you started like accumulating too much information. You're locked in the back of a cage with this lady for 10 minutes. Like... <laughs> don't take in so much data that you're going to just vapor lock, you know? And I yeah. feel like in title ends up in the pre-hospital context when it's applied as like, man, I don't know what's going on. Let's see what their in title is. It's like, no, you're yeah. going to just confuse yourself. Yeah. hundred percent. Like stopping chest compressions, confirming endotracheal tube placement and figuring out if your albuterol is working are all reasonable applications in my mind. It's hard for me to think of other off the top of my head, but there's probably others. Yeah. I mean, I think it has a place for sure and it's a powerful tool, right? But like all this stuff of you can actually diagnose this and that with, and it's like, no, you can't. <laughs> you just yeah. can't. I think it's a fascinating thing to talk about that mm -hmm. I've like thought would be, make a really great podcast episode. But at the end of the Dope. day, but at the end of the day, it's like, you know, you have to take so many so many variables into play with regards to how deep are the respirations, how fast are the respirations, yeah. like, and interpret that. And that all changes the entitled CO2, and it doesn't just reflect what's going on in your blood yeah. uh, CO2. And so at the end of the day, it's usefulness is like really like waveform. Is it present or is it not? Yeah. Like if you're gonna walk out of the room, it's pretty great because it'll <laughs> it'll tell you when somebody stops breathing. That's right. That's quickly. right. Like yeah. Yeah. Bar, yeah. If yeah, you're great. in the back yeah, of the yeah. ambulance, you're just looking at their chest. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, I've seen yeah, they've yeah. stopped breathing. Yeah. Uh, well, there's a reason at Denver Health the Life Pack 15 was programmed so that every single alarm was turned off except for the apnea <laughs> alarm. <Yeah. laughs> so like it all. 
any time it alarmed, it only meant one thing. They stopped breathing, you know? And it's like, I think there's utility there. That's most important. Dude, that's a fucking crack up, man. Should I stop recording, Ross? Yeah. Oh my God, we're recording all that? Oh, we were. Now, before I get too much hate mail in regards to this, I do want to emphasize what Nick said here. Intitle definitely has utility when it comes to monitoring CPR quality and helping to determine when resuscitative efforts may be futile. It is the gold standard for confirming endotracheal tube placement, and it can help monitor the effectiveness of your asthma treatments. Nick referred to evidence suggesting it doesn't change outcomes when used for monitoring respirations and procedural sedation. And he's right. There was a Cochrane review looking at three different studies that showed use of entitled CO2 didn't change outcomes or rates of adverse events when used in procedural sedation. That being said, entitled CO2 will detect respiratory insufficiency much faster than any other monitoring device we have. And it's easy to put on and low risk to the patient. So do I still use it in my own procedural sedations? Yes. There's little downside and potential big upside. Also, when I do procedural sedation in the emergency department, at a minimum, there's usually three people in the room. And at least one of them's main job is to monitor the patient's respirations for the entire procedure. You don't always have that luxury if you're alone in the back of the ambulance. You may be trying to get multiple tasks done at once without the ability to just constantly focus on the patient's chest rise and fall. I don't think you can extrapolate these in-hospital procedural studies to the pre-hospital setting. I would still advocate for its use in monitoring sedated patients during transport for respiratory insufficiency or complications of that sedation. Again, there's little downside and potential life-saving upside. So to summarize, entitled CO2 has excellent indications for a limited number of uses and can detect apnea far better than any other monitoring tool we have. I think we'll do a deep dive on this topic in the future. So if you have any questions about entitled CO2 you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at ross at emspodcast.com or will at emspodcast.com. Until then, be safe out there.